The Centre Steer podcast is sponsored by Commonwealth Classics and Knightsbridge Overland. This month's Center Steer podcast is sponsored by Commonwealth Classics. Commonwealth Classics is a direct importer of classic vehicles from Europe and South America and has a rotating collection of rare and unique vehicles in their showroom located in Virginia, just 45 minutes from Washington, D.C. Visit www.cwclassics.com to view their current inventory of classic vehicles. Thanks, Commonwealth Classics, for your continued support of the podcast. The Center Steer Podcast, a podcast by, for, and about Land Rover owners. Welcome to the Center Steer Podcast, podcast number 118 for January of 2023. Center Steer is a podcast by, for, and about Land Rover owners. I'm your host, John Costage. Joining me via Zoom is Harold and Dixon. Welcome back, gentlemen, to the podcast. Good day. And Morgan is out sick. So he's, he's called and reported in sick today, so he's not going to join us. This month is the second of a two-parter. George Bull, off-roader, overlander, and former Land Rover certified instructor, returns to share his adventures of getting down his driveway. Actually, there's more to it. There's a lot more to it. <laughs> He'll talk about his adventures in North America. Coming down the driveway is the easy part. Stopping at the end is the challenge. <laughs> That's it, exactly. Well, over Christmas, he did put 112 or 120 tons of gravel into his driveway because there was a an 18-inch boulder blocked a, a culvert on that went under it and sent the, the stream down the driveway, which removed a lot of gravel from it. He has and a spectacular probably minimal driveway. amount of time too. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was. They they talk about how slowly water carves a canyon, but I tell you what, it can move a road very quickly. And it did. His own off road adventure. Yes, he does. Just getting down his driveway is an off road adventure, and that what Dixon has just told you is uh, updated information because we talked to George back in November. So that is all. New information that we will not discuss later in the podcast with George. <laughs> a lot of it is him getting down his driveway, which is, uh, we, we call it his North American adventures, but let's face it, it's just getting down his driveway. Thank you for listening, and a big thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. We appreciate your support. You can visit the website to see how you can support the podcast. If you also want to be a Patreon supporter, you can also buy a t-shirt, a sticker, or you can buy us a tee. It, which is similar to Patreon in that you, but you get to choose the amount that you uh, support us on. And as a bonus for our Patreon supporters, uh, most guests answer our 10 questions, which is a quick fire question and answer round. And I did just uh, post Jeff Aronson. He com uh, competed, competed. He can uh, completed our 10 questions. Well, if Jeff was competing, he won. <laughs> Uh, speaking of a bias of tea, uh, Bob, once again, bought us some brown water. He uh, reports in a wonderful trend is developing. Oh, I guess we're going to break it, though, with the, this month. Uh, how nice to have all four of you on the podcast. Uh, bliss and topping it off, which was the insight of our friend Jeff Aronson, only elevates the bar. Brown water for all. It just doesn't get any better than this, which, which is a, a Bob tagline when you get emails from Bob. It doesn't get any better than this. As he sends brown water in your direction. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sorry, Bob. Uh, Morgan reported in sick this month, so we're, we're going to have to break the streak. Oh, dear. Perhaps Morgan needs some medicated brown water. It's 2023. This is Land Rover's 75th anniversary year, and this is your monthly reminder that we're inviting all Land Rover owners to the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix in July 
especially Defender and Series owners. You have now six months to prepare your rover. It's crunch time. And you've got five months to go and prepare your rover for the Diamond Jubilee at Greek Peak, being hosted by the Association of North American Rover Clubs. Registration is now yes. open. We're over 300 people registered for the event. Five months to get ready for Greek Peak. That leaves you a month to fix what you break in New York before you bring it to Pittsburgh. Yes. And now for the news. All right, we have a lot of JLR business type news this uh, this month. So uh, buckle up. JLR returns to profit thanks to sales of the new Range Rover. In the final quarter of 2023, after booming sales of its new Range Rover models, uh, it returned to profit just for the... To be clear, just for the month or for the quarter only, a shortage in computer chips has added to manufacturing concerns in previous months, but the shortages eased in the final months of the year. Profit before tax in the quarter for a JLR was up 265 million pounds, which is up from a loss of 9 million a year ago. A total of 79,591 vehicles were sold in the period, which is up 5.7% compared to the previous quarter. It has sold 5,000 of its new Range Rover SV luxury 4x4 cars since its launch in October. These cost £180,000 each, and the new model has earned the firm £900 million, helping them set uh, its first profit since the pandemic. And it's a big difference, 265 over negative nine. That's that's a big jump. They were only slightly losing before, and then they, like, up by a chunk. Uh, interim uh, uh, chief executive officer for JLR, uh, Adrian Mardell, says, uh, JLR has returned to profit as chip shortages eased in the, in the quarter and production and wholesales increased. These improved results are a testament to the hard work and dedication of our people across the business who have delivered a further increase in production of the new Range Rover and Range Rover Sport models. And another article here around the same thing. Actually, looking at the JLR press release, we can get some specifics on uh, the volume. As I said, they sold almost uh, 80,000 units. That excludes, by the way, the uh, Cherry Joint Venture out of China. But the overall sales were up 5.7 compared to the prior quarter, and they were 15% compared to the same quarter a year ago. Uh, compared to the pr uh, prior quarter, wholesale volumes were higher in North America, up 17%, up 13% in the UK, up 10% overseas, down 13% in China, and down 3% in Europe. And they said China volumes were impacted by COVID shutdowns. And what's also up is that their order book is up another 10,000 to 215,000 vehicles on order awaiting delivery. Holy backlog, Batman. Yeah, that's what... Three quarters worth of vehicles just in just sitting in the order book. In the computer industry, they call that vaporware. <laughs> and then Forbes had a lengthy article called Ailing JLR has options, but none look tempting. I'm going to read the various parts of this, uh, which I think is, you know, relevant to the, the podcast and, you know, our interest in the, in the continuation of JLR. This reads as kind of like JLR in particular is having problems and uh, they need to find a solution. And as you know, they've gone through two CEOs now in what, two, three years. Let me, uh, let's say, I'll go through this and, you know, feel free to chime in as you, uh, as you guys like. Uh, JLR is in dire straits and needs a much bigger sales and a massive electrification budget to compete against Europe's premium auto 
market leaders like BMW, Mercedes, and Audi. Given that neither is very likely, the quicker it picks a partner or succumbs to a takeover, the sooner it can breathe easy. That's the challenge facing the replacement of former CEO Terry Bollari, left after two years replacing uh, ex-BMW executive Ralph Spaeth. No word yet on whose replacement might be, but JLR points out that the company is currently led by interim CEO Adrian Mardell, who's over 30 years industry experience. But whoever ultimately gets the call to lead JLR might well look towards the fate of Volvo of Sweden, also an undersized, struggling, upmarket wannabe, which prospered after being taken over by China's uh, Zhejiang Geely Holding Group. Professor Ferdinand Dundenhofer, director of Germany's Center for Automotive Research, car, get that car, okay, said Tata Motors uh, is the global industry's biggest problem because of its lack of volume and slow electrification pace. That's Tata's JLR, is to be clear on that. Right. And it's not just the German competition that threatens JLR, it's Tesla and the Chinese. And this is a quote from Dudenhofer. The high-tech Chinese uh, car makers are coming next to Tesla with uh, BYD, NIO, and others. The Chinese have important software functions that would cost a lot of money to create a JLR. The same applies to modern battery electric vehicles that are ahead of the I-PACE. So it's a very sad situation, he said. British-based automotive uh, analyst Charles Tennant, we've heard from him before, agrees JLR is in big trouble and hasn't made a profit since 2018 when sales reached over 600,000 vehicles worth 25 billion pounds and profits hit 1.5 billion pounds. Quote, since then, JLR has not returned a profit and it has been a sorry tale of failing sales, financial losses, investment write-offs, and a painful downsizing through loss of job, thousands of jobs. The problem for JLR was that they were heavily invested in diesel power, which was becoming a dirty word after the VW Dieselgate fiasco. The Jaguar saloons were not selling well, and they were not pushing vehicle electrification hard enough, Tenet said. The long-term plan was to reach sell 1 million vehicles a year in the financial year. Uh, ended March of 2022, sales were just under 300,000. And as you mentioned earlier, Dixon, they now have 200,000 backlog. <laughs> I know. It's like a, for them, that was a, like another year of, of production. Continuing on here in the article, according to the Financial Times, Bellari was removed because of his inability to handle the semiconductor crisis. Bellari didn't, did take some aggressive action. He canceled plans to produce battery electric versions of the top of the range Jaguar XJ and the big uh, J-Pace. This reported one billion pound write-off was greeted with dismay by some critics. Bellari declared Jaguar would not only be all electric by 2025, but also cease competing against the likes of Audi and Lexus and would reach into the stratosphere for the massive profits, but low sales world of Bentley and Aston Martin. This plan has yet to be detailed, but expected to end its ability to steal SUV sales from Land Rover. That's a good thing. Yeah. Continuing on, Cars Dundenhofer says action is required to secure the future of JLR, but the options may make clear why he described his future as uncertain. A Volvo-style Chinese deal is a possibility. If JLR remains with Tata, big cuts are likely. Quote, as a Tata subsidiary, this is probably nothing left but to radically cut the models and to continue working on a small frame with a joint venture, possibly with BMW. To do this, the entire company would have to be downsized, not a nice thing, and whether you can then be successful with 100,000 or 200,000 vehicles is a big question. In my opinion, selling would be a better option. It's hard to say whether it's Stellantis or a Chinese one. I would rule out uh, Toyota. So JLR is in the toughest problem in the entire automotive industry. There is another option, 
but a very much a last resort. JLR needs a partner other than Tata because the Indian company doesn't have the financial or electrification expertise. The obvious partners are Chinese already gathering to assault the European electric vehicle market. The likes of SAIC, uh, already big in Europe with its MG brand, Geely or BYD are in the frame. Companies like these have the required financial power and technical expertise. SAIC has shown what a well-known brand can do for an unknown company's market capability. Coming out of left field would be an interest from high-tech companies like uh, Apple or Google, said to be mulling automotive incursions. But if JLR fails to attract rescuers, here's the last resort. If it was in danger of failing, a plea to the British government to protect jobs and high-tech tech technology would be a hard political case to turn down. Because that's worked so well in the past. I don't know that the, the British government has the money to, with all of its other issues that it needs to address to also step in and help out JLR. Well, they've also got the, the horror of their attempts with British Leyland in the past, which would be give people a little bit of yes. pause and shudder. Hence my earlier comment. Yes. Yes, but even if they want, even if they wanted to help out, whether you know based on past history or not, of uh, you know of uh, British Leyland, I I don't think they have the money. I just to to do it. They've yeah. got to deal with. They've NHS has issues. They have uh, energy uh, issues to deal with. The Brexit fallout that's continuing. And as much as they want to, I think hold on to what the last manufacturing, uh, homegrown manufacturer, uh, JLR. It may not be possible. I think the the partnership idea has some merit. I mean, they've they've bought engines before, so why would this be much different? You're buying electric powertrains from somebody who's making them at scale. Well, it's not so much the electric powertrains. You know, certainly getting batteries from someplace is going to be important. Electric motors have really not changed much in a in a long time. Really, overall, it's. The key is going to be the software that's going to run these cars, these, these EVs and so on. And that's going to be the, the huge challenge. And the hardware in terms of the controllers and, and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And the chips. That's, yep. that's all part of that. I Actually, I think that's, to me, I see as really the heart of the issue is having that, that, that chip capability. If you partner with a big company that's making these powertrains and you're buying a few of them, it's it's from a company that's got the volume and the, to have the clout to buy the chips. Yes, I I, I think that would fundamentally be the uh, start to help uh, fix the ship. They're trying to electrify and they're trying to to build batteries and and, right. and connect in with BMW and and what you know is is Magnusteyr working on any electrification is that is that a possibility I, no, I'm sure Steyr everyone is a small is. company but Steyr doesn't really have a lot of size themselves so and Cummins is also working on electrification if I'm not mistaken that's they're, I guess they're doing yeah they're doing some some out there stuff uh, definitely and they've been make they've been involved in electric generation for a long time so they have some some electrical engineering expertise definitely so for someone like Cummings and large earth movers and all the rest of that stuff, I think diesel power is going to be around for quite a way, quite a while. It, I would agree. Electric is electric is not going to quickly and cheaply replace, you know, massive caterpillar bulldozers or you know the huge Volvo mining trucks and so on like that. Right, they not are doing quickly. work. They are doing work in that area, but it's not a big function of their activity. They're making so much money making diesel engines that anything else is just a, a, yep. a pleasant diversion so that they can oh, yeah. tell people, oh, we are concerned and we are working on alternate technologies and stuff. But, you know, again, it's 
you know, it's one tenth of one percent of what they do. Yeah, if I'm running a mine, I'll wait till someone else has perfected it and then buy the equipment. Oh yeah, it's not an area that you want to bleed, be on the bleeding edge of. No, downtime is the enemy of all mining operations. Yes. All right. Well, shall we uh, move on to JLR? We have more business news. We continue with it. JLR confirms reduced shift plans at the Hale Wood plant. In December, Echo, which is a newspaper in Liverpool, uh, revealed the company would be cutting the number of shifts available for workers at the Noensley plant, while dozens of agency workers had their contracts terminated just days before Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas to them. <laughs> Permanent staff, we're told. That's Happy Christmas in the UK. Uh, permanent staff were first told in December that from January, the number of available shifts would be reduced. It has now been confirmed in a letter to the workers that the plant is moving from operating two daily shifts to just one. The company says these changes will be in place until further notice. And which was interesting about this, I read elsewhere, was that a number of the workers in the plant weren't very happy about their union in agreeing to a lot of this which tends to show the union probably didn't have that much choice. You know, the, the, the power in this situation is going to be with the company and not with the workers. They're just not selling or, or making stuff. So you have to reduce shifts. What are you going to do? Can't make the, make the vehicles. doesn't matter how many shifts you have. And yep. It doesn't matter how many, how many you sell. Cause that just increases the backlog. You can't build them. You can't build them. Yep. All right, moving on, JLR owner Tata to make EV battery cells in Europe. Uh, JLR and Tata will be the anchor customers for a facility in Europe, which will also sell battery cells to a wider market, said Tata CFO. Tata's finalizing plans and will announce details soon, he said, declining to disclose the location of the facility and a time frame. There will be a lot of investments, he said, without elaborating. The intellectual property heavy facility will produce two cell chemistries, lithium iron phosphate for Tata Motors EVs and nickel magnesium cobalt for JL, for Tata and also for JLR, the CFO said. So that's, I guess, some good news. I mean, yes, we just heard that they need to get into EVs. Maybe Tata is kind of going down that path, but maybe they're not moving fast enough. I think they have to build in Europe too, because I think Europe has some requirements for percentage of materials being made in Europe. Uh, they do. Everyone does. Every major country has domestic production uh, quotas. And this goes along with uh, a British Volt was a uh, industry concern that seems to have failed in the UK. And uh, so maybe that's something where Tata can util utilize that facility. It wasn't built yet, but that might be something where they could they could utilize that in the UK. And I would think they would have better access to uh, talented personnel in Europe than they would in India. I could be wrong about that, but... Yeah, there's a couple things going on there. I think you're, you're right, Harold. There's the, the talent aspect. There's the incentives uh, from you know Europe and from Britain, and then just also the requirement, the, the quota requirement for production. And I think there's perhaps a little more uh, infrastructure in place already making that type of stuff. Yeah, the Defender and uh, Discovery are made in Czech. So if you're in Europe, you're you don't have to ship stuff uh, a long way, you know, half half a world away. It's you're you're right there, relatively close. 
Slovakia, other side of the line. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's yeah. Thank you. You would have been right 30 years ago. But. <laughs> yes. Speaking of tech, JLR has success in snapping up sacked tech workers and Aston Martin is also joining in on that. So JLR's reported success in hiring uh, sacked Facebook and Twitter staff as Aston Martin joins the race. Uh, sacked is a British word for fired or layoff here in the US. The British manufacturers are both on the lookout for new team members with JLR revealing its approach for targeting tech teams made redundant by the social media giants was a success. In November, JLR's appeal for uh, to thousands of redundant staff from Facebook and Twitter to come and work in its burgeoning digital departments. JLR had 800 roles available, and now the firm has revealed it has already filled 500 of them. In an update, JLR told local papers that the workers had been taken on to support its digital transformation and it was still looking for more roles based in the manufacturer's tech hubs in the UK, Ireland, USA, India, China, and Hungary, and come with hybrid working patterns, said the firm. So I, I see a new spin in all the headlines now. It, in the future, Google and Twitter are not going to be downsizing. They're not going to be laying people off. They are going to be providing them opportunities to work in another industry. <laughs> And another tech story, and this one's InfoSec related because, well, I'm in information security. Mentioned this one. This is uh, a group of white hack hackers cracked customer and back-end operations of several automakers, including BMW, Ferrari, Ford, JLR, Mercedes, Porsche, and Rolls-Royce. The hackers gained access to the latest round of vulnerabilities, including detailed customer information, internal administrative functions, which the group did not disclose until early this month because of a self-imposed 90-day moratorium. Security engineering firm told Automotive News. That's really all the detail, but just referencing it since it's InfoSec. For those who, who really aren't with the times, uh, the white hat hacker is someone who hacks his way in and breaks the system just to prove that it can be broken and to provide possible advice for how to prevent it from happening from, from actual nefarious folk. I'm simply amazed at how easy, seemingly easy it is for hackers to get through company systems and so on. You'd, you'd think that the news would be full of... Uh, VP of IT or IT security heads rolling a lot more often than they you ever hear about. And they really got to do something egregious for them to get, to get blown out. A bad director of information security is still better than having no director. Yes, yes. And a lot of companies don't like even talking about the fact that they have been uh, uh, hacked or popped or you know broken into unless they have to. And that's where regulation goes right. into play. And well, nobody, nobody likes to advertise that they leave their doors unlocked. Huge tangent. Next news item. <laughs> Fair enough. U.S. Uh, auto sales fall to a decade low. Last year, sales of light vehicles in the United States dropped to their lowest level since 2012 amid supply chain snarls and tight inventories. Per Automotive News, U.S. light sales uh, in 2022 totaled 13.4 million units. And let's pause there for a moment to remind ourselves this is 13 million vehicles sold in the U.S. JLR sold 300,000 units worldwide. Yep, still a small player. But again, the, the drop in sales is is you know, supply chain stuff, chip supply. And I think also the rising interest rate isn't helping any either. Yeah, I, I would agree there. Uh, also, it was worth calling out here because we don't see this too often. Uh, Stellantis, which owns Jeep in 2022, their sales slid 13% to 1.5 million units. And that includes Jeep, Ram, Chrysler, Dodge, Fiat, Alfa Romeo, 
and Jeep specifically was down 12% in volume. You know, uh, there, there's the, the good and the bad, right? You have U.S. sales down. Jeep, certainly here in the U.S., big competitor to Land Rover. Their sales are down. Probably good for Land Rover since maybe folks want a Jeep that could look at Land Rover, but then Land Rover can't fill those orders. So I guess it could be a lot worse for Land Rover, I suppose. One, another way to look at it. Well, yeah, just wait till Jeep decides to start putting more incentives on their product to sell the ones that, that they haven't sold that they maybe already have built or can build easily. You don't have to wait nine months. Moving into further North American activities, specifically our friends to the North Canada, they plan to enforce an ambitious zero emission vehicle sales quota by 2026. Mm. And coincidentally, we've invited a Canadian to come join us. In the- <laughs> <laughs> this, is on, this is why we have you here, Dixon, right? If only we had somebody who was Canadian and knew something about how the Canadian government works. <laughs> Well, the Canadian government has announced enforceable quotas for zero-emission vehicle sales by 2026. A fifth of all new passenger cars, trucks, and SUVs sold in the country will need to be zero-emission vehicles, such as electric or hydrogen. Quote uh, from the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change said, We're moving forward with a regulated sales target that requires at least 20% of new vehicles sold by 2026 to be zero emissions, increasing that to 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. Further, while Canada already has zero emission vehicle sales targets, those aren't yet enforceable nationwide, though some provinces, including Quebec and British Columbia, have their own mandates. The final regulation should be published in 2023. According to Canadian press, importers and manufacturers that don't meet quotas may be penalized under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. The country will use credits to track vehicle sales. All right, Dixon, defend your country. Oh, I don't, don't need to defend it. This no, is a political just... announcement. Uh, from fun. from a government that has not met a single um, greenhouse gas target that it's that's been set in probably the past twenty years. Fascinated to see um, how are they going to enforce it. Twenty percent of what is it? Twenty percent of all I, I Fords. Like... And if I'm Tesla and I'm selling, you know, I can sell. Can I go and sell my? You know, I sell a, a Model S. Can I sell? Credits for four vehicles to JLR or to Ford to sell them. How how's it going to work? It, it's going to be fascinating to see the regulation and how it's published. Okay, and let's get even better. You know, I don't know how many cars are sold in Canada on an annual basis, but are there actually going to be that many EVs available to fill the twenty percent? So if you if the companies can only make X number of cars and they don't want to be have huge fines, you're going to restrict the the market of via, new vehicles in Canada. How this is actually going to uh, work is going to be fascinating to go and see what they're, what they're thinking is. I'll bet you, you know, a beer that it'll change by the time that the deadline rolls around. I, I suspect that. I agree with you on that one. That's the part that I find interesting is like, you know, they, they keep their, they, they keep saying this is an enforceable quota. It's like, we've had quotas before, but this time we really mean it. Well, what's the, the, the number Canada is responsible for 1.6% of worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. You know, Canada could sink into the ocean and it wouldn't make a, <laughs> an iota of difference to the whole problem. The and problem let's be, for let's be honest. Is in the third world, not let's, us. Let's, let's be honest. A significant portion of that 1.6% is moose farts, which you're not going to regulate anyway. It'd be a little tough. A little tough. There's, uh, there's our Canadian content for the month. Your CanCon. Can, can, oh, <laughs> we have a new segment, CanCon. 
Let's get out of this business-specific, JLR, business-specific related. Uh, That's the end of new business. Now let's get into vehicle stuff, things we uh, things that we like talking about actual Land Rover vehicles. And Auto Blog uh, in the U.S. here has a Land Rover Defender reportedly getting electric variant in 2025. Land Rover gradually has gradually expanded the Defender range since the launching of the second-gen model in 2020. The off-roader will receive a mid-cycle update in 2025, according to a recent report, and the range will, all, uh, will allegedly grow to include an electric model. Without citing sources, Auto Express uh, wrote that the 90, 110, and 130 variants will be offered as EVs in the coming years. It sounds like going electric will require making significant changes under the body. The pub publication believes that the updated Defender will switch to the MLA Flex architecture that underpins the latest Range Rover and Range Rover Sport. It stopped short of providing technical details, but adds that the electric Range Rover, tentatively due out in 2024, will offer about 300 miles of range and a 100 kilowatt hour battery pack. The availability of an electric powertrain doesn't mean the gasoline burning Defender will disappear. And while a handful of powertrain specific styling cues will differentiate the EV from other models in the range, the updated Defender will look largely the same as the model currently in the showrooms. Newer in-car technology will be part of the update as well, though the interior won't change that much. Land Rover hasn't confirmed on the report. If it's accurate, the battery power Defender will make its debut in 2025 and likely won't land in showrooms until the 2026 model year. One of the most direct rivals would be the electric Mercedes G-Class due out in 2024. So subtle body differences between the electrified and the non-electrified versions, like things like grill and tailpipe, or lack thereof. That's true. It would not. It probably wouldn't have a tailpipe. That's a good point. It's the most disturbing thing about the <laughs> Tesla. Just driving down the road, following a Tesla, and the lack of tailpipe just is visually distracting to me. And a review of the 2023 Range Rover D350. It's a diesel. We can't get that here in the U.S. Hence the D. Hence the D. So this is out of Australia. Well, we can get it, but people just haven't been buying it. So Not legally. The, no, I think they they did have uh, diesel Range Rovers here, but people were just weren't buying them. And then and I don't think they're here, available here in the U.S. anymore. So they were legal at one point. Right. Hence, we can't get the new one legally. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yes, you are correct, sir. So tough new laws, tightening emissions of particulates and NOx means diesel engines for light duty vehicles, cars and SUVs are on the borrowed time in Europe, where in 2015, diesels kind of for 48% of sales, they are now forecast to be less than 10% in 2025 and barely five in 2027. Automakers have realized precious development dollars are better spent uh, perfecting PHEV and BEV powertrains, then finessing a dying engine technology, especially in the market like the U.S., which never really warmed to passenger vehicle sales of the diesel in the first place. The Range Rover D350 will remain forbidden fruit for American consumers, and that's a shame. The long-term emissions issues are real, but right here, right now, the D350 is arguably the best all-around powertrain for the big rangey. But none arguably offers quite the same combination of performance, efficiency, and value as the D350 powertrain. The D350 is the top-spec version of JLR's 3-liter Ingenium inline-six turbo diesels, producing 345 horsepower at 4,000 RPM, 516 pound-feet of torque at 1,500, to 3,000 RPM. That is the beauty of diesel. All that torque at low RPM. Yep. The D350 doesn't have the horsepower. The P400 and the P44E, excuse me, the P440E powertrains available in the U.S., but look at the torque number. It produces 27% more torque than the P400, 19% more than the P440E, 
and is only 37 pound feet shy of the P530 V8. All of which is available just above idle versus having to rev the piss out of it to get the torque. Uh, power's nice, power's fun, but in a big heavy SUV, torque is your best friend. And here's where the Torquey D350 puts the icing on the cake. It's not the heaviest of these Range Rovers, far from it, in fact. According to Land Rover's figures, the 350 tips the scales at 5,357 pounds. That is, again, according to JLR, 117 pounds more than the P400 weighs, but it's also 173 pounds lighter than the P530-powered Rangey, that's the V8, and it's massive 583 pounds lighter than the P440E, which is the electric uh, PHEV version. You can see... What that means in quota performance numbers, not unexpectedly, the 523 horsepower P530 will lunge away from the D350 at traffic lights, but although it's 45 horsepower down on the P400 and 84 horsepower down on the P440E, the diesel's claimed 5.8 seconds, 0 to 60 time is just three-tenths of a second slower than the six-cylinder gas engine rangey and a tenth off the PHEV model. And I'll bet the zero to 30, the diesel wins. It's that that initial jump, the diesel's going to have yes. an advantage. Once the uh, gasoline Turbos. gets, well, yeah. And once the gasoline engine gets up in its rev range, then it's it's going to just reel in the diesel. But the diesel's going to get the jump because of that low end torque. And it is also waiting for the, the turbos to spin up on the diesel too? Uh, well, it depends on how it's designed. Obviously, you want them to spool quickly. But but yeah, turbo lag is an issue. And to conclude here, the, the Range Rover D350 is, a, is cheaper than either the P400 or the P440E models, let alone the P530, based on British pricing the d350 uh, specified the same way as our test vehicle including options such as the uh, butami Batami, gold paint one of the two there 22 inch wheels digital led headlights semi annuline leather trim heated and vented seats front and rear would cost one hundred seventeen thousand dollars in the u.s versus $117,500 and $123,000 respectively for similarly equipped P400 and P440 models. P3530, the V8, with the same options, would cost $142,000 US. Performance, efficiency, and value, add it all up, the D350 is the peak of the L460 Range Rovers. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was worth spending time on that because we will not get that here in the U.S. Well, we never That's get the true. cool stuff, so what's what what else is new? So we can all drool. I think, you know, if, if Range Rover really wanted to be serious about selling diesel engines, they would have to make a cowboy Cadillac, a crew cab, one-ton pickup. And, and fully bling it out Range Rover style. Problem is they still wouldn't make enough volume to justify all the certification costs and production tooling and all that kind of stuff, but they could sell them. Those guys spending ridiculous money on big Duramax pickups and, and Cummins powered Rams and all that sort of stuff. Since the pickup, it would get hit with a 25% import tax. Well, there's that to be considered also. Well, let's move on to the Defender line for 2023. Autoblog has a, a review of all the 2023 models, and you can learn about different trim levels and models for the, for the, uh, for the Defender, how it drives, how it rides. What's the interior like? What's the technology like? Uh, you know, what's it like to drive? And I will just read you the pros and cons for overall. So it's only a couple sentences. Pro, variety of engine and body styles, excellent ride, handling, interior noise for an off-roader, go-anywhere capability. That's the pros. Cons, subpar fuel economy for luxury SUV, pricey trims not uh, over, overtly 
luxurious, and definitely not cheap. It does get an 8.5 rating from Autoblog out of 10, so that's a, give it a good rating. I recommend you look at this article if you're interested in buying one so you can see a breakdown of it. In particular, at the end of the article, they have a breakdown of the pricing structure of models and the trim level. So you go from the Defender 90 uh, S is uh, $56,575 uh, US, all the way up to looks like the top you can spend if you wish is uh, surprisingly not on the 130. Looks like you can buy yourself a Defender 110 V8 Carpathian for $119,875 American. So I'm seeing the the one thing about it is is the tradition of the Defender is at least carrying through in those pros and cons, the number of different body variants, the subpar fuel economy, and the cheesy interiors are all traits lifted from the original Defender. <laughs> I don't know if I go so far as say it's cheesy interior, but okay. They, uh, they, yeah. they said as much right there. You said in the cons, when you were reading the cons, they talked about the interior being... Oh, the pricing trims are not overtly luxurious. That doesn't sound like cheesy interior to me. It's just not overtly luxurious. Well, you're paying luxurious. a high price for luxury and you're not getting it. In the original Defender, you paid a premium price for the product and you got a whole lot of plastic. That is true. All right. And specifically, uh, TFL, the fast lane car, has their online YouTube channel. They did a whole story on, do I want to buy a new uh, 2023 Land Rover Defender 130? So this is a 20-minute video. If you're interested in buying a 130, I highly recommend you check this out. Uh, this is a, It's a good video on kind of, you know, living and driving. Admittedly, they only had it for a short period of time, but that's how they do things. They buy cars uh, for a period of, no, this one they didn't buy. They bought a 110 and they tried to buy the 90. 90 had technical problems. Uh, this one is on loan, but they do do their uh, purchasing of various vehicles for long, longer term testing. Are these the guys that bought the 90 and had to send it back six times? Uh, correct. And then they had, pro they bought the 110. They actually said at the very beginning of this, they, they kind of recapped that whole situation. They bought a 90, had technical problems. They sent it back to the manufacturer. They then got a 110 that, that the, uh, the dealership broke in some fashion and they eventually did sell that. They're now have a Bronco as their long-term testing vehicle that they purchased. They're using the 130 uh, here to show this example. We have a video they here could, in a moment. They could be using they the 130 to, to tow all the dead 90s and 110s they've been getting. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, all, there's another article from Car and Driver that uh, also is a review of the 130. They call it uh, the 2023 Lambert Defender 130 tested. It's a stretch. Yeah, okay. Dumb pun, and the chassis has not been stretched one bit. It's the same wheelbase. Correct. Yeah, they don't, they don't really talk about that in the article, but uh, I'll read you this last paragraph. Distinctly different describes the Defender overall, and the pricing is certainly upscale. The 130 skips the steel wheels stripper trim levels and starts instead with the S for $69,500, which is a premium of $9,700 over the 110S. From there, it climbs through the SE, the X-Dynamic SE, and the first edition trim levels to top out with the X, which retails for $101,375,000 before options. So another reference if you're thinking about uh, buying a 130. And if you're thinking about buying a 130 and you're going to tow... TFL also has a, a video that's, a, I think, about 10 minutes where they use a 130 to test that aforementioned uh, Ford Bronco. And you can watch that about uh, the towing uh, this one. A couple things to point out. 
Despite its size and towing capacity, the 130 does not come with a trailer brake controller, which is a bummer. The trailer only weighs 2,000 pounds and our Bronco weighs 5,300 pounds. Altogether, the weight comes in at uh, about 7,300 pounds, well under Land Rover Defender's maximum tow capacity, which I think is still 8,200 pounds. Uh, the 130 is remarkably smooth and quiet. The air suspension not only provides a bump-free ride, but the trailer combination also doesn't sway at speed. Andre, who did the driving, uh, he feels this is one of the most compliant SUVs he's ever towed with. I wonder if he's tried towing with the 110, because I would think that would be a better experience than the 130. Same wheelbase, same suspension stuff, but with less overhang in the back, I would think the trailer would be more controllable and more maneuverable. Just my thoughts. Autoblog uh, has a short video on the Defender's uh, clear bonnet, clear hood capability, which has uses the video cameras so that you can see through the bonnet, see through the hood. And it's just a minute, but you can see it actually in action. You can also see that they show you the video, how you can uh, look through the bonnet. Of course, I'm still one of those people who thinks you should get out and take a look at the trail yourself. Still nice to see an operation if you've not seen it. So go check that video out. Yeah, it's a nifty gadget, but I don't think it replaces actual human interaction. It might be good in a situation where you can't get out because, you know, Maybe your door stuck <laughs> against a rock or something that might be helpful, but you know, you need to get out of something quickly. That might be, might be an aid. Yeah. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't replace getting out of the vehicle and checking the, the line before you're going through some obstacle. And then I didn't know where else to put this, but we're putting it here. It's the J in JLR part Jaguar, the 2024 F type 75 will house Jaguar's final V8. That's it. That's the story. Just thought it was worth mentioning. Okay. I know. I, I do hope Jag continues, but I do have my concerns that Jag may may just uh, disappear. Oh, it's a it's a tough scene. They're in a tough segment of the market. Again, if they start producing the kinds of products that sell, then they're competing with their own sister division, which is not a good recipe for either. Yeah, they're they're also they're smaller in production than is Land Rover, and we know how right. small Land Rover is. <laughs> right. I mean, they're low volume, so they don't have a lot of resources to do anything really big anymore. And not like you can design a new platform during the night with the shades drawn while you're waiting for the Germans to bomb you. I mean, that that sort of stuff just can't happen anymore. Back to Land Rover and hearing from another one of their markets. This is a Korea JLR Korea has has had an event to unveil its limited edition Defender for the first time in Korea, marking the 75th anniversary of the model at the D Museum in Seoul. All new Defender and classic Defender vehicles, including the 75th limited edition, were exhibited. So that's cool. Just we hadn't hadn't heard too much uh, from some of the other markets, especially in Asia. So it's uh, good to hear. What's the What's the D stand for? So the D Museum looks to be an art museum. Uh, their website says an art museum where daily life becomes art. D Museum, the Daylim Museum in the D Project Space is run by the Daylim Cultural Foundation. Committed to becoming an art museum where daily life becomes art. Once again, Land Rovers are in art museums. All right. Works for me. That's cool. Take that. They started off in the Louvre with the Range Rover and they're continuing on the trend. And uh, we move towards the conclusion of the news. We still got more stories. So hang on. But wait, there's more. We're going to talk about mainly legacy defenders, the uh, heritage defenders, old defenders, defender version real, one. Real, real defenders, <laughs> proper defenders. 
actual defenders. If you're wondering what all the all, all the Heritage Defender talk is all about, and maybe you've been thinking about buying one, Hot Cars has an article that you may want to look at because it gives you kind of a history and a reference material to use about uh, original Land Rovers or version one, gen one, whatever you want to call them, series one, technically. Uh, the article is entitled, This is Why Land Rover Defender 110 Prices Have Skyrocketed. To be clear, they do not answer that question why they've skyrocketed, but they do talk about uh, about the classic Land Rover, what it's about, where it came from, and uh, you know how it drives and rides and what you would consider uh, you know, if you were going to to purchase one, what that experience might be like. And it's not exactly breaking news because the skyrocketing prices are not a recent phenomenon. I do enjoy the caption under the first photo. To some, the Land Rover Defender may look like a crudely designed rudimentary truck that's beyond outdated. Those in the know, however, are aware of the beauty in this simplicity and the joy that it can bring. Which is why it was in a Korean art museum. That is correct. Always puts a smile on my face to drive a proper Defender. You're driving a piece of art, Harold. It's a wondrous thing. If you're wondering what it, what we talk about and maybe why this could be a good, and, you, and you'd like to introduce yourself to Heritage Defenders, uh, this would be a good place to start because they're out there if you want to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this article <laughs> okay this there article is called a few of them left there's a few smart entrepreneur ordered the last 240 land rover defenders to rule is to look into the future when land rover announced that it will really stop with a defender the original uh charles fawcett gets into the car and drives to the factory his company twisted automotive will place an order of around 7.5 million pounds for 240 Land Rover Defenders in 2015, which is now around 35,000 pounds per car. These Defenders are among the last ever built. In the next two years, the cars are delivered and stored little by little. Since then, you can go to Twisted for a factory new Defender 110, and not only that, the company first adjusts them for you to ensure that the car fully meets your wishes. The last 16 copies of the large order, the company does something special with them. Twisted has one of every color Land Rover supplied at the time. The company takes care of the cars thoroughly and then sells them to you for around 135,000 pounds. So about 112,000 euros more than before. That's quite the investment, huh? <laughs> and of course, it's important to note they didn't talk about any of these numbers in uh, dollars because you still can't bring these to the U.S. You were going to have to wait tw 25 years. Well, no, no, another 20 years, right? We're going to have to wait 20 years now. Yeah. I don't think Twisted's going to hang on to these fresh new for 20 years. I don't think they want to, but that's a long payoff. Yeah. Yep. And finally, if you do want to buy an older Land Rover, and this one's a special one, this is a Discovery. Uh, there is a Land Rover Discovery Camel Trophy Mongolia Edition that is going to be up for auction. And this is... Uh, 1997 Discovery 300 TDI is an original Camel Trophy veteran. It was piloted by the Romanian team in the 1997 Mongolia event and is now being offered for sale with its original accessories, including the kayak and both mountain bikes. And the auction goes off on February 3rd of 2023. And the estimation is between 30,000 and 50,000 euros. It's a good looking truck. I mean, it looks... Uh, like they've uh, kind of kept it, maintained it. It's a genuine Camel Trophy disco. Eligible for import to the U.S., I think it will go and exceed that 
those num- that estimate. Quite possible. The discos have been gaining value. and Especially the Camel Trophy ones. Definitely. The Cam- Camel Trophy provenance adds value, definitely. And this one, if it's for the Mongolian Camel Trophy, this would have the Genghis Khan trim package. <laughs> it does have a French title. It is one of 20 examples prepared for the 1997 edition has 83,453 kilometers on the Odo. Ah, so it's just broke in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. There is no reserve on the bidding. So you have uh, you have a couple days if you are interested in the auction. Break open those piggy banks. Yeah, that's that's only 50,000 miles on a on yeah. a on a TDI. That's nothing. Change the oil, put a new timing belt in it and you're good to go. If you do happen to be the purchaser, a successful bidder on this 1997 discovery and you want us to test it out, we'll make ourselves available here in the podcast to help you out. Mm-hmm. And that's the news for January, 2023. Stay tuned for the second half of our conversation with George Bull. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers help protect your classic Land Rover. Whether you're on the trail or cruising around town, they're the perfect solution for protecting your pristine Land Rover seats or to cover up your well-worn and aged seats. Each seat cover is hand-cut and sewn in the USA for a custom fit that looks like it's straight from the factory. Every seat cover is crafted using durable 600 denier Cordera material. It's waterproof, oil, and dust-resistant. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers are designed to be extremely comfortable and help keep you warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer while providing protection against mud, dirt, grime, and more. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers are available for most classic Land Rovers, including Series, Defender, Discovery, and Range Rover. Select the Knightsbridge Overland seat cover that's right for your Rover. Available in both tactical and non-tactical versions in four colors, black, tan, mocha, and gray. Our tactical seat covers include military-grade Molly webbing that accommodates pouches, weapons, tools, first aid kits, and more. Non-tactical seat cover feature three handy pockets for much-needed extra storage in your Land Rover. Visit KnightsbridgeOverland.com and enter Steer 10 at checkout for 10% off off your Knightsbridge Overland seat cover order. That's KnightsbridgeOverland.com. Enter Steer 10 for 10% off your order. Protect and enhance your Land Rover seats with Knightsbridge Overland. Welcome back to the podcast, George Bull. George, we had so much fun with you the last on the last podcast talking about your Africa, Trans-Africa trip. We're now having you to talk about your North American adventure. So welcome back, George. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot of fun telling those stories. It's it's nice to have an audience that's appreciative of this stuff. You know, I talked to my neighbors and I I could have be I could be saying, yeah, you know, there I was on Mars, you know, <laughs> because they just it's it's not really their thing. They don't they don't um they're not into overlap landing and they're they're not into really traveling very far so. and yet it doesn't stop you from telling the story no I, I everybody including the guy at the dump knows that i've you know driven my my uh various vehicles in various places so they they get a kick out of it that, that is the thing about land rover owners i've noticed is they like to tell you their stories oh yeah 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 no that's one reason i blend in you know and and to be honest with you the reason i'm still into land rovers now is not as much the vehicles anymore as the people it's a it's a great it's a great eclectic group of people it's the whole gamut always have a great time with with land rover folks always learn something new from somebody and there's a there's a good sense of community absolutely will we see you at the the diamond jubilee i hope so 
And I actually, that's where the 101, that was one of its next things that it did in North America. So Greek Peak, um, I'm pretty sure that I was, it was a while ago, but I'm pretty sure that that- 25 years ago, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I think I just- 24 got, and a half at this point, but yes. Yeah, I think I'd just gotten back and I'm pretty sure that I went, I definitely went, but I'm pretty sure that I went with the 101 and there were a couple of 101 owners. There was Jared Silbershear and um, I don't know if Howard was, was, uh, no, no, this is just before Howard came over to North America. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there were like, I want to say there were three and basically at that point i decided to retire the 101 as a expedition vehicle and i didn't want to start going down all kind of trails and beating the crap out of it because it just seemed kind of pointless to take that vehicle um and it had a lot of sentimental value so you know like i i did winter romp with bruce one year and it was just me and bruce i think he was i don't know what he was driving might have been he was in he this when he had his 88 and um, we were breaking trail in the 101. I was able to do it all. And that was with Pete Vollers that year. It got really cold and this was like a soft top. But I thought, you know, if I keep doing a lot of these winter romps and I start kind of driving like that with this vehicle, it's going to start beating it up quite a bit. At that point, looking at um, different vehicles and I bought a 1987 Range Rover which I later found out is actually a prototype when, unfortunately it's kind of dead now, but I was doing some work under the dash when I was still trying to fix it. And it had those, you know, the manila tags that are like on cotton string that people used to use to organize stuff. It had all, it had all these manila tags on all the wiring harnesses and it all said Eagle and like Eagle, it was either Eagle one or Eagle two. And it was all part of that um, Eagle, I think. And the other thing is, is that like the, the, they changed the whole EPA uh, emission sticker on it. So it had something else on it before. And it was an 87, but it had a lot of it. it I think it was one of their very first um, one of their very first, uh, vehicles. I think it might have even been one of their like test mule ones that they they decided to sell. So I didn't know that when I bought it. This was like a North America spec. Yeah, yeah. So the Eagle program mm-hmm. I, again. This is a. It's been a while since I've. You know, I used to know all this stuff like off the top of my head, but nowadays I. I so many other things have happened between now and then, but it was like the, if I remember correctly, they had internal code name for the North American Range Rover was like the Eagle project. And, uh, and that's what these Manila, uh, you know, all in handwritten from the factory basically say. So it, it, I I don't know to what degree, um, you know, that, that proves anything, but it doesn't impart a special vehicles feel to it. Yeah. And it was, it was, so I, that was a kind of tired, I, again, I was always on a low budget. So it, I, you know, I basically, that was the cheapest coil sprung vehicle that I could get my hands on. It, it had problems. Um, but I basically lifted it with a, like an old man emu. I did not make my previous mistakes. I went for a relatively soft suspension. You know, I went for not the heavy duty old man emu springs and um, I just gave it a mild lift. I put slightly larger tires on it. And, you know, that became my kind of a winter romp vehicle. Um, It was also a daily driver. Again, you know, I, I wanted a Defender, but I just, 
even well, you couldn't even get a defender then, like legally, uh, you know, they, they were really hard to import. So that got me into kind of the coil sprung. And what year is this? Oh, when would have that been? That would have been like 90, right around 2000, a little bit before 2099. Okay. So you over 10 year old uh, Range Rover. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it had high miles on it. And basically I did a lot of, you know, I, I did, um, God, I did Mar once, um, and I did all kind of East Coast things. There were less events back in those days, so that one also went. I think to I, I might have only done um, Ottawa with uh, leaf sprung vehicles. Right about that time as well, my wife we moved here to um, to New Hampshire, and she was working at the at the Mount Washington Hotel, which is a good. 50, 60 miles and you have to do a mountain pass and it goes through like a uh, national forest road. So there's like no, nothing going on. And she wanted to have a Land Rover. And again, we couldn't really afford to buy uh, anything newish, but I, through word of mouth, I found out that there was this 88 for sale, literally about as far away on, in North America as you can be. It was out in Washington state in uh, the, what are the, the islands? I, I think they're called the San Juan islands. They're, they're, right off the coast of Seattle there. And so this is like early days of, you know, internet kind of and emailing and really bad pictures because everything was like such low resolution. So the guy described the whole vehicle to me. It had a hard top, soft top. It had a, a winch on it, PTO winch. He also had the overdrive. You couldn't use both at the same time, but he had an overdrive. He had all kinds of odds and ends parts. And it was out on that island. So, you know, and it was in my price range. So basically we got like a low budget ticket. We flew to Seattle and then in Seattle, it was kind of funny. We got to the counter to check in for our like little island hopper flight. And the guy's like, you, you know, what do you have to check in? And, I, and we had a backpack and almost all my weight was devoted to tools. So I just had tons of tools. And, um, and so he's like, all right. And, you know, he checked us in, he checked in a couple other people. And all of a sudden we see him go behind the counter. He's there on the conveyor belt thing. He's loading all the luggage onto the plane. And then, um, you know, he basically calls us out onto the runway and says, we're ready to, you know, he was our captain as well. So we, we land on this Island. Welcome to Bob's airline. I'm your pilot. Yeah, Bob. yeah, no, exactly. And so we land on this little strip and uh, the guy that was selling it picks us up. And I looked at the truck and I was like, Oh man, that was such a misrepresentation. So it was definitely not as clean as he had said it was. And the plan was to drive it back to New Hampshire. And we gave ourselves a week, drove it around the Island. I mean, I was borderline you know, I, I wouldn't have bought it actually, except that we were already too far into it to kind of bail out. And it was still not a bad truck. So what exactly is it? And what model or year? Okay. It's a, it, yeah, it's a 70, I think it's a 71, it's a 2A88. And it was really stock. One of the cool things on it was that it still got these stickers from um, Chiapas, Mexico. So it was owned by a guy in California uh, it's, it's, it's original frame and everything. So, it, I mean, it, it didn't suffer from a lot of rust and he used to drive it down to, uh, right down to like Guatemala base, or he stayed in Mexico, but you needed to have like these 
passes back in the 70s. So it's like Chiapa 71, Chiapa 72, Chiapa 73. And they're on the windshield. You needed those stickers to be able to, you know, it proved that you had the vehicle insured and all that stuff back in the day. So it still has those stickers on it. Um, and then he took it up to Canada for a couple of things. So I've got some, you know, maple leaf flag stuff. And anyway, we, we got it, put it on a ferry, get, get to the mainland. And it's a kind of a corrugated gravel road. And as I'm driving, the steering is just getting looser and looser and looser. And like, I can't even mm. keep it on the road. And what had happened is I was actually, when I was driving it, I was thinking like, wow, this is really tight. It's, you know, like it's, it's the steering is all good. And, you know, it's staying, it's less loosey goosey than a lot of other series vehicles I'd driven. Well, the reason was, is the ball joints had all rusted solid. So mm. So they, cause this guy only drove it around this little Island and he never drove it more than 15 miles an hour and it was exposed to salt spray. So, so once we loosened it up, the ball joints basically like they were ready to just pop off. So I was like, uh, so I actually drove back to the ferry, got back on the ferry. Cause it was, they, you know, the ferry drops you off. And then an hour later, at least we got back on, we went back to the Island. I told the guy, I said, listen, you know, I either want my money back or you have to help me. Cause there's no way we'd make it across. He lent me his car. And then, uh, it's like, uh, Gordon it's, I've been watching Hercule Poirot mysteries. So it's not Poirot. It's like Gordon Parrott on the, on the West coast. I went to his shop and he had, uh, again, this is the Rover community, right? He had, he had parts kicking about. He's like, just take them and, uh, and worry about paying me later. So I got back into this guy's beat up Corolla, drove it back to the Island, swapped over all the steering linkages. And then we went, um, drove back but now we had like five days and not seven days and my wife literally had to go to work like that next monday so and her sense of geography was kind of like okay you've got washington state you've got kansas new york vermont and then uh new hampshire <laughs> you know she kind of forgot yes, about some yes. of those big western states that go on forever yeah. A whole lot of nothing out there. Yeah, we tried. I, you know, since I'd driven cross country multiple times, I knew that, you know, like once we got east of the Rockies, it was going to be pretty boring. So we did do some mountain trails, um, like through Montana, they, they weren't really off-road trails, but they, it was a lot of fun. They were like abandoned roads and stuff. So we did that. And then once we kind of hit, uh, the flats, we just, we just went balls to the wall all four tires went flat on the course of this trip. And one of the, th one of the not simultaneously points, though, right? No, not simultaneously, but one of them. So the guy had put Michelin XCLs on it. And, and like, that was one of the things that I was a selling point for me, even though I totally ruined the tire. They wore out by the time we got there, but he had put, um, bias ply um, tubes in. And so the tubes pinched on the radials. And so it wasn't that the tires failed. It's that the tubes started yeah. leaking and they weren't. Wrong tube, and, yeah. Yeah. And, but the one time actually, it was pretty funny. The one time was like right outside of Chicago at, uh, at a toll booth where, you know, it's all of a sudden like 25 lanes wide and it was like at five o'clock and it was like totally crowded. Mm. And all of a sudden I hear like flop dunk, flop dunk, flop dunk. And I'm yeah. like, I think that was our second or maybe third flat at that point. And we're like, ah, so we pull over, but within 
five minutes, this guy pulls up in a Subaru and he's like, I love your 88. I got an 88. He's like, what do you need? And so we're like jacking it up on taking the, took the wheel off right there on the side. Cause our spare was flat too already. So, of course it was. So, so, um, <laughs> We, you know, he like tosses this tire in the back of his car, drives off, you know, comes back 45 minutes later. Um, they, they just took the tube out, put a, a valve stem on it and seated the tire and off we were again. You know, I, I, you know, it was just one of those spontaneous things. Um, and literally the, we had multiple problems with it. One of which was the, the starter motor crapped out. And so I don't know where we were. We were like in, um, Ohio maybe. And we had to keep the engine running and, you know, we're, we're like putting fuel in it. And all of a sudden through the little microphone, I hear someone say, excuse me, you have to turn off your engine when you, you know, it's against the law in Ohio to fuel with the engine running. And I was like, really? And he's like, I'm going to turn off the pump if you don't turn off the engine. So I turn off the engine and then um, we keep filling it up. And then we had, so I'm like, where's the crank in this thing? You know? And I'm like, I hope this guy had the hand crank. So we're in the back rummaging through, and then we finally get the crank and I'm sitting there cranking it over. And you hear kind of from the microphone going, what are you doing? And, you know, we're like, we're trying to start the car, man. So then every time we had to stop it, we had to hand crank it. We were just totally out of our minds, tired. And we were like in Western New York and we pulled into this diner and we just could not stop hysterically laughing, my wife and I, and people, you know, kind of kept the distance from us. And she literally pulled up, we pulled up and she literally took a shower, got dressed and went to work because we we literally got in time and it was like doing 18 hour drives. You're doing 18 hours behind the, in the, behind, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. Two like a. Yeah. With two people in Dude. the whole back filled. Oh, it was, it, we were spent. I we mean, were you, totally you, spent. You must've been shaking. Your hands must've been vibrating for like a week after that. Yeah. Yeah. It was. And, and sleeping. I think we were like, oh. we didn't like sleep and I don't know what, I, I don't, I think we were doing road at that point towards the end, we weren't eat, One person was sleeping in the passenger seat and the other person was driving. Like we, we drove nonstop. You can, oh, that, I mean, in a modern car now, it takes at least what, four days to cross the country that. Far. Oh yeah. And, and a, what were you, you were probably averaging what 50 miles an hour if you're lucky. Yeah. Well, it had to overdrive on it. So it, it and okay, as 52. long as it was relative, yeah, as long as it was relatively flat and, and, you know, we had vapor lock issues for sure, but we didn't have any carb fuel problems. So the engine ran pretty strong. So it had enough to yeah be one of the faster 88s out there, which is obviously not saying much, but yeah, it was a, yeah, that's a was, relative term. Yeah. It was a long slog, and it, it, you know, like Kansas was went forever, you know, and my wife was like, Oh man, I forgot about all these Western States, you know? So you tie off so, the steering wheel. So you just, <laughs> yeah, no, the funny thing is, is that yeah, that doesn't my, work in a serious truck. You need to be constantly oh, providing yeah. input. Yeah. And even with all the new ball joints, yeah, it, this one, it has a bit of a loosey goosey steering box. So you, you're always yeah. like correcting a little bit. Well, As a matter a, of fact, a good friend of ours says you don't steer a series truck. You just herd it down the road. Yeah. And it's funny oh, because yes. I don't drive the 88 
that I mean, we just drive it around for fun now. And I, and so I won't, there'll be like a month or two months where I don't drive it. And when I get behind the wheel, I'm always finding that I'm way over correcting. Cause I'm, you know, you got to let it just kind of do its thing a little bit, right. you know, yeah. and, and you got to remember to do that because I'm like, correcting it and trying to keep it straight. And I'm like, Oh no, you know, I'm back in the 88. Mm. You know, and then you takes you, you know, like maybe 15 minutes driving, then you get back into the groove of things and you're like, okay, steering is an approximation. And as long yeah, as we're if going to try, try to hold it straight and narrow, you're going to be working constantly. But if you yeah. let it have the whole lane, it's really not that bad. Yeah, no, that's exactly how, and that's, I mean, that's why I like that vehicle. Cause it's still got like, you know, tons of tons of character and it's it's uh what adventures did you get into here in north america in that truck well so with that truck that's gone to so the first time we went to we did the um the main north woods twice the first time was with the uh the the 109 with my wife the second time was with that 88 so we've taken that there's some fun footage of the of what we did on youtube you know we went through some decent water with that and it was it was kind of bushwhacking um up in the and it's the same thing. You're pretty far from civilization. You know, you have to bring your own fuel in and stuff like that. And that vehicle, we basically actually what happened is my wife used to drive, you know, that was her daily driver. And she drove, geez, I forget what the pass is, but but it's um she drove to, to the, the Mount Washington Hotel every day, five days a week. And th- we put studded Huckapolitas on it. And you know, the mountain, the pass is pretty steep. So she she'd crawl up it. But I mean, she had one of the most beautiful commutes you could ever do. I mean, it's like North Conway to the Mount Washington hotel, right through the notches, you know, and she'd tell me, Oh, I saw a bear today, you know, saw a deer. She'd see all kinds of things. And, um, she actually national forest. Yeah. 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 Bretton woods. It's like, so she worked in Bretton woods and that's a, you know, when there's snow, you know, she should show up to work. And funny enough with that, I, I bet they loved her because she was the only one they could ever count on to absolutely be there. Well, the funny thing is, is that at the hotel, so she was like a, you know, a, an administrator there and it was split between like people like grounds crew people and people who, you know, kind of clean the rooms and stuff like that. And then there was kind of the professional class, so to say, and they kind of didn't really cross paths that much, but the starter motor crapped out on her as well up there. And so she was cranking over the 88, you know, she's wearing like, you know, like her formal office wear and stuff. And like some guy from the grounds crew comes over and he says like, what are you doing? And she said, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm trying to start my car, (laughs) you know? And then she had total street cred with those guys, you know, they were like, they loved it. And, and um, they all liked the Land Rover. So they definitely knew her and the Land Rover. Um, So yeah, that, that vehicle was, was a, was a lot of fun. Did it get a name? Uh, yeah, Busta. B-U-S-T-A, because it just always kind of busted on us coming across. So we didn't know what to. Uh, <laughs> what, so that, yeah, That's that one. Stuck. Yeah. yeah. And the 87 Range Rover was Twende. And that means like, let's go in Swahili. What happens after the 88 then? Uh, so the 88, God, then in the meantime, I imported three uh, Minervas, Series 1 Minervas. So there are three in North America. Because one just wouldn't be enough. 
No, I was selling them. So okay. one of the things is that that I started importing, you know, I, I kind of learned the ropes of, of buying stuff at auctions in Europe. So I bought these, the Minervas in Belgium, um, and then I sold all those. So I didn't keep those. And then I got, geez, I can't put it all chronologically. I, I bought a, um, a D1 five-speed. And I bought it off of a guy outside of Boston and he dumped a lot of money into it. So he, it had a, a safari guard, uh brush bar on it, winch on it. He had ARB diff locks on it. It had like three sets of tires. He had like street meets and then he had uh, off-road tires for like, th- I think 235, 85s. It was a, re- he lifted it. it was a re- he had it all set up with radios. So really nice setup. And um, he moved and where he moved, his condo association wouldn't let him park it. So um, and his wife hated it. And I bought it for mm. thirty five hundred bucks and there ah. was not nothing wrong with it. And I drove it. But the sad thing with that one is, is that I really like that. That was like of, of my Land Rover setups the 100 inch coil sprung is like it you know it doesn't have the cachet and the coolness of a defender but you know the 100 inch is just the right size you know it's nimble enough to get down most places a d90 can go but that extra length in the in the wheelbase um it, it just it's a nice setup and that i really like that truck but cash for clunkers came and um, the feds gave me 4,500 bucks for it. But before I parted with that, um, it, 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 and it was a tough call, but I was like, all right, I'm pulling everything off of this. Yeah, I was going to say, has, I hope you did that. Oh, so so what I did is I yanked the the whole ARB diff right out of it. I took the seats out. I took the, the, um, you know, the, the high, low diff lock lever. Cause I was already, th- I already, I think I already also had a D2. So I was thinking I'm going to, so I can manually lock right. it. Um, you guys would pay good money for that linkage too. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I took it all out. I took all that. I took the ARB bull bar or, or the, not the ARB. That one was the safari guard. Took that right off the front, took the winch off, took all kinds of stuff off of it. Oh, and I had a set of tires that I had um, for a rolling chassis that were those Firestone tires that blew up. You remember that Firestone? So oh, yeah. I, I had these really crappy Firestone tires that I put on it on really, really rusted out um, rims from a series vehicle. That's the combination. And, and since I took all the linkages off and I took the rear diff off, I locked it into diff lock center diff lock so that I'd have front wheel drive, but I was driving it to the dealership because the, deal was you had to drive it in. You couldn't tow right. it in, right? Got to come in and own power. Right. So I'm and it cruising. has to be legally registered too. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was registered and plated. So, so no seats in it. I mean, it was like gutted. Drove and, um, no crate or what? Basically. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I came in nice. and I'm driving and I hear this rattling, right? And I'm like, what is that rattling? And I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think, and I'm like, and it's getting louder and louder and like, oh, it's the park brake drum because I took the rear drive shaft off and the rear oh, drive shaft don't have drum screws holds the drum in place. And I'm like, yeah. this drum is going to violently come off. And I'm like, what do I do? So I pulled the park brake so that it would hold it in place. And I just dragged it and it was like smoking. Yeah. 
And I'll say that when I left that thing at the dealership, you know, you can take it out of diff lock and just grab the park brake and still get forward motion. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because you you burn up your center diff in a hurry, but, but you can do that if you have to. Yeah, no, I, I basically just got it in there and then I felt like, I don't know. I felt like abandoning, you know, the dog at the vets or something. I mean, I, I felt guilty. My wife was, yeah, but you did it to a dealer. So it's yeah, not a problem. Yeah. And they, they screwed me over because they, I wanted to get the um, EFI out of it, like the, the, the ECU and stuff. And they said like, come back. Um, they had to destroy the engine. They said, come right. back and we'll let you pull it. But they didn't, they didn't let me get near it once it, uh, once it went in, but yeah, that was one of the vehicles. And then I've got a kind of keeping it to what I had in North America on that kind of schedule. Yeah. Then I went with a D2. I bought the the discovery two from Land Rover. That was another, it wasn't a prototype, but it was one of the very first two D2s that came into the country. It's 90, 90, 91? No, this was a 96. 99 was the first year oh, for D2. the D2. I'm sorry, D2. D2. Okay. So yeah. it's a 96. 96. And it belonged to Land Rover. So when I got this, I actually, my mom bought it and she used it before I bought it from her. But it, it basically, they used it as a press car. They had two. They had the one that we had, which was a Kimversand one that had all the stainless steel bull bars, had all the lights and everything on it, but none of them were wired. Um, and the <laughs> discs on it were blued because they, it was the on-road one with the ACE suspension. And then they had another one that was the one that they used as their off-road demo. So it was used for photo shoots and stuff like that. And when they were done with it, that's when I was with, uh, with Land Rover. And so they were like, you know, we're not going to use these at the school. So I, I bought one of those on behalf of my mom still have that. That's kind of become a parts truck, but that was, that was, eh. I wasn't, I didn't like the D2s that much. It just, it had a lot of issues and it, it just didn't quite live up to the D1. Also, I had a, when I got back, I bought a 110. So a left-hand drive, 19. Finally got your Defender. Well, here's the, well, I, I got another Defender, but here's the irony of the, the, this Defender has been named the Vapor Rover because I have owned it for, you know, at more than 10 years. And I, I, uh, I decided that I was going to, this was going to be my lifelong Land Rover, like the one that you own for the rest of your life. So I galvanized everything. I took everything apart. Wow. I, I made it that far into the project. I just never got back to the putting it all back together again. So I got this, <laughs> I got a galvanized 110 frame. I, I galvanized the, the firewall. It was in good shape to start off with. And that's like the danger of, you know, doing these projects where you Mm -hmm. get in over your head. So that's a classic example of, um, you know, I drove it around, I brought it in through Canada. I drove it around in, in Nova Scotia for a little while. And then basically I got it in my head that, uh, you know, I was going to take it apart. And it was with this guy, John Cranfield. And John was like, I don't know how you can take a perfectly good defender and take it apart. John Cranfield also known for having some projects going in Mm -hmm. over his head. So it was wise work words in those days that I did not heed. Um, so you bought so, a running 110 and, and turned it into a CKD. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So, you know, and I've got all the bits and bobs um, and everything's been galvanized and every, that thing's been pickled that I'm hoping to actually still get that together. And then in the meantime, I've got a 127 Marshall's ambulance right on that, that I bought in the UK 
that I was going to use as a vehicle in the UK, but it's got the three, five V eight in it. And, you know, you think diesels or gasoline's expensive here. It's crazy expensive. So getting, it just, it didn't make sense. It was kind of hard to sell in the UK. So I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll row, row it over. And I don't know what I'm going to do with that yet. That it's, it's a, it's a, 30,000 miles on it. Um, it's a pretty decent truck. It runs. I don't use it very often. What model is that? Is that a three? Uh, no, it's, it's a, it's no, a, one twenty seven. It's an early, it's a 130, but before yeah, they one, called yeah. it one thirties. So it's an early, it was, it was the very, they used two, the British military used two iterations for those ambulances. It's like the, the marshals, and then after that, they did like one with a 300 TDI and a really nice composite back on them. Those those make awesome like overland uh, starters as came. Right. The 127 was kind of odd because they left the truck cab intact and just grafted the ambulance box onto it. Totally. Totally. And it's yeah, you find grafted. the bulkhead, the back window, all that junk when you when you start digging into them. No. Yes. Room. And. No well, it does. It does. Cause it doesn't have the back windows or anything like that. Uh, they took the and window it, out. Okay. Yeah. And it doesn't have the roof. Right. So they bolted, it, you know, like talk about headroom. You can almost stand up in the front of it. Um, oh yeah. The marshals, they took it out. The locomotors, they left it. Left yeah. The lo- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So this was, yeah, this is a Marshalls. one of them. The roof is still there. Yeah, no, not on this one. This one doesn't have the roof. It's got like a big cubby glove box and then it says ambulance um, and it's a window where they etched the word ambulance and then they put right. a light behind it. Right. And it's really annoying when you're driving it because it all glares back. <laughs> but the funny thing is with U.S. Customs, they're like, what is this? And I'm like, it's an ambulance. See, it says it right on it. Ambulance. <laughs> That's a fun vehicle. It's also with the I like the Rover V8. You know, I used to be a TDI I never owned a TDI. I always wanted a TDI. I always aspired to TDIs. I always couldn't get one and I always ended up with the V8s. But now kind of in my older age in North America, I I have a soft spot for the for the especially in the defenders, um, you know, the the 3.5 and in the in the Range Rovers and stuff. It's a or the 40, you know, 42, 46. Not when they started getting super EFI'd, but the the older iterations when they were still pretty straightforward, um, they're they're fun engines. Well, the three five isn't isn't the most powerful thing out there, but it's fairly bulletproof. Yeah, no, the, yeah, they're definitely. Oh, this poor, yeah. So one of the things that happened with that one with the one twenty seven is when I it, I was at a friend's of mine's in uh, in the UK, and so I'm like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna ferry this over. So I'm like, it has to be cleaned. And and he basically kept it in his garden. So there were like ducks living under it and there was bird crap all (laughs) over it. So I'm like, all right, we got to pressure wash this thing. So we rented a pressure washer. I pressure washed the whole thing, had to pressure wash under the engine bay as well, just to, you know, to keep it nice and tidy. And so we started up and, and I start driving it and we're loading it on the trailer and there's just oil coming down the whole just dumping oil. I'm like, ah, so I looked around and it's the head gasket that it's like the intake manifold head gaskets that like tin that had totally rusted. And when I hit it with the pressure washer, I blew holes in it. So the oil was splatting all over the place. You got an Um, open valley at that point. Yeah. So it was like, but this is the thing you can do in the UK that you just can't do in the States. I was able to go to a, like a, a, Napa equivalent. Right. And I'm like, I need one of those gaskets. I need the, you know, I, 
he had all the parts in stock. So I was able to put, you know, take the, take the carbs off, put a new gasket in it. And then we towed that down with a, a D he had a D four on a trailer. And when I picked it up in Newark, I towed it home with an LR three. So, and that's kind of what I'm driving now is a, it's a 206 LR three that I basically did the, you know, the, the DAP 2d lift. So I spoofed it. So it's on a, like a two inch lift. I kept the airbags. I like the whole airbag system on those. Um, it's a little finicky, but it's actually relatively, mm-hmm. it's, it's all the valves. If Compared there's a problem, to the P38, it's much more refined. Yeah. And, and a lot more, you know, I found the LR3 to be a remarkably by, especially by Land Rover standards, but by any standards, it's actually a pretty reliable vehicle and it's pretty well put together. Um, you know, it's a totally different cup of tea than, than a, than a older series vehicle or a coil sprung. It's, I think it's a, it's a fundamental like sea change, um, not for better or worse. I, I like it. Um, and I've, and you know, it's it's got the diff lock on it, so that electronic diff lock. I've lifted it. I put two fifty five seventy eighteen tires, so that's like thirty ones. I got skid plates that I bought in the UK underneath it, and I got an ARB bull bar on it, and I got a Harbor Freight winch. And you know, just <laughs> and I'll tell you, I like the Harbor Freight winches because bang for the buck. Yeah, I don't like electric winches, period, because I find them all problematic. And right. so, and the Harbor Freights, you know, but I've had I've owned worn winches right. where it's the same thing. The solenoids all if you don't use them regularly, they crap out. But the Harbor Freight one has actually done me has done me justice. I mean, a tip to anybody who wants one of those winches or buys one is the cables they use are really crappy aluminum cables and they have a circuit breaker on it. So it'll blow the circuit breaker if you put any sort of load on it and the aluminum cables suck. But if you put some welding cable, some really good cable and you just bypass the circuit breaker, that thing is actually proven to be just as reliable. I think I paid like 289 bucks for it, 12,000 pound winch. I usually um, rewire any winch I install anyway, but I mean, the nice thing about the Harbor Freight is yeah, when it does blow up, you're not out much. So who cares? No. And it's, and it's been, it's been pretty good. And so with that LR three setup, you know, I, it's, it's a little bit weird because the thing I don't like, you know, there's proactive driving and there's reactive driving and like the proactive systems and reactive. So proactive is like when you can switch the diff yourself, you know, you lock your ARB, you lock the center diff, you proactively reactive is like the ABS brakes and the traction control and stuff like that. And I'm not, I'm more of a proactive driver. But you just kind of have to, you know, what is it? Real men don't drive automatics that it's like, you just got to let it do its thing. And it it's remarkable how well that system actually works. And I, I've got a driveway that in the winter time is like a failed ascent up my driveway. It could mean you're rolled on your side. I use the traction control and I can watch it. It's kind of funky because you've got the lights and you can see it lock the rear diff, lock the center, unlock, lock. It's playing around, but it's going up straight and it's holding every eking bit of traction. Although going down my driveway, I have timed out the uh, the hill descent control. And I can tell you what happens is you get a solid tone and the brakes go. So it, it, you hear just going, and then all of a sudden you get a warning light. The little light for the hill descent control comes on and it goes, beep, and 
you lose, you don't lose your brakes, but you just lose the whole hill descent. And it's a, by the time you're a passenger or what? Well, yeah, basically at that point I was trying to process what was happening. And by the time I processed what was happening, we were three feet into a snowbank. Um, and this was, Uh and I still had to vote. So that's why I was driving down is because this, this wasn't this election, but it was, um, and it was one of the weird November storms we get where it's really slippery, greasy snow. And so I put the hill descent control on my wife was like, she's sitting next to me. She's like, no, this isn't going to work, George. It's not going to work. And I'm like, I'm going to do it anyway. I want to. And so I actually filmed this. I do have this filmed because I took out my, I was like, let's see proof of concept. Let's see how well hill descent control works. So we made it about halfway down that section of my driveway. Um, and it just, it couldn't keep up. And it, so it just turned it just off. Stops. It just stops. Yeah. Well, and then you just lock up and slide over. Then you, then you go basically you're manually driving and braking at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have, and you don't have, and basically what happened is, you know, I did the, the newbie dumb thing and I planted my foot on the brakes. Right. And uh-huh. standard but, panic response, but the ABS brakes weren't working and you're already sliding. So you're just sliding. You just slide until you hit something or yeah, that, at that point you're the middle man in the bobsled. Yep. And then my <laughs> wife was like, I told you so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> But then out came the uh, the cheap Harbor Freight winch, and um, I think we made it in time to vote. It yeah. is an awesome driveway. It's it's pretty steep. How long is it? Uh, it's about sixteen hundred feet long. Oh yeah, okay. Was so that when, part of your off road driving course? And you got no, getting your driveway. Well, the driveway. So the driveway is. Um, it's, it's really steep and it's built up on a grade. So like, if you think about like a railroad grade where you've got really steep banks, there's a yeah. section where it's a 25% um, grade oh, and on either side. So it's 12 feet wide. And then on either side, it's an eight foot drop off. And so that section is, wi- so all our vehicles, we don't own any two wheel drive vehicles. So we also have Audis and stuff. Everything runs studs. My tractors run chains. Uh, it's, it's super. And there are times where we just, we can't get out, you know, um, or, or rather we have to wait and I have to run it through with a, with a tractor, with chains, tear it up, sand it, do that kind of stuff. It keeps you on your toes. Yeah. I try to, exp- well, you, you know, Pete Vollers, um, he, he called me one time and he says, George, you know, I, I Cause I, he knew about all my trails and, and my land and stuff. And he said, Oh, you know, I want to bring, you know, maybe a friend or two over and can we, uh, you know, we want to try to make it to your mountaintop. And I was like, all right. And the date that he picked, I couldn't, I couldn't be here. Cause it was actually my grandmother-in-law's hundredth birthday in Florida. So you can't miss that, you know? So it was a real bummer though, because that's when Pete was coming. So Pete gave me this impression that it was going to be him and maybe one or two other vehicles. So I'm on my, and it was in the winter, it was like in January and I'm on my way down. And all of a sudden I see this Toyota Tacoma pickup truck with a Toyota Land Cruiser on the back. Um, it was one of Pete's friends. And he's like, I'm just going to trailer this up your driveway. I said, no, you're not, you're not going to make it. And he's like, no, you know, this thing's, he had studded tires and he's like, no, I, I can make it. So I was, I paused, I watched him make it about the first 50 feet and then him very 
gently backing up saying, yep, I think I'll drive the land cruiser from here. But basically Pete, I think he had about, um, six or eight vehicles. He even had the 88 on tracks, the, uh, the guy that has the, the tracked 88 at events. So that didn't make it, um, on that course. Uh, Pete was driving a G wagon. It, it must've irked Pete. Cause he's one of the only ones who didn't make it to the top, but that took them all weekend. Um, so they started on, uh, like Saturday morning and they didn't come back down until Sunday afternoon. Wow. Wow. Well, 1600 feet. So was, so was no, this no, that's like, not, a... no, that, that's not my driveway. This is actually, so I, Oh, this is the, the, the trails that you have on your Yeah. Property. The trails, which okay. go to the top of the mountain. So it was a, probably a good two mile, uh, two and a half mile ascent doesn't, you know, that winds its way up. And it's a, my property is a 900 feet elevation gain from the bottom of my property to the top. That's impressive. Yes. So their average velocity was two miles per day. Yeah. They were going slow. I mean, it, it was, um, who was yeah. like, uh, Matt Brown was there. There were a couple, you know, it was basically just plodding through pushing, you know, breaking trail and then winching because it's the whole thing is so steep that like I've never made it up there. I've never tried, but I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a serious challenge to make it up. So this was sort of like a miniature, you know, play version of the ascent of Mount Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> and, and Pete turned it into a bigger event than, um, than I was anticipating. So I, I want to say it was probably, again, I wasn't there, which was a bummer. I would have loved to have been there, but I want to say that it was like eight or 10 vehicles all highly modified. Yeah, there's an article in uh, Rovers North, right? As, as I recall about this, this whole ascent attempt, right? The, the Mount Washington one, yeah, yes. yes okay. not, yeah, that wasn't yeah, that yeah. wasn't this. What you're talking no, no, about? No, 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 no. Okay. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm I'm not that big. Okay. So no, that the Mount Washington ascent was was pretty was pretty cool. That was in I think they did that in Range Rover Classic. That's in a one ten. That sounds about right. Yes, I think yeah. and, and a snowcat. Yeah. It's a serious, it's yeah. The snowcat helps. It's a serious, the thing about that is it's like driving out in Colorado, right? If you make a mistake, you're going over the edge big time. And I mean, they did it with, and the wind and the it's, it's a brutal environment up there. I mean, the, 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 um, what is it? The, the really high definition movies they do the max something, uh, IMAX, yes, the IMAX movie of Everest was actually filmed on Mount Washington because oh, it, gotcha. it, it gets it gets all that extreme weather. But yeah, that was that was yeah. I didn't have anything to do with that. I I asked them if I could do that, and they just said no. <laughs> but yeah, so now I'm basically LR threes, and I'm doing. I like the LR threes. You know the the new Defender is is a funky vehicle. I don't really consider it a defender. I'd love to have one if I had the money. I'll wait. To, there's one thing that Land Rovers do exceptionally well, and that is depreciate. So, you know, when, when one of those defenders comes down into my price range, I'm like low hang. I, I don't, you know, I, I spend the last LR3 I bought was for 3,500 bucks. The one I bought before that was for 10, which is probably the most I've ever spent on a Land Rover. I don't think I've spent more than $10,000 on any of these. 
And so when they become affordable, you know, I might, but I, I, an LR4 would be nice. The LR3, LR4 for a modern vehicle, um, you know, I'd use them as daily drivers and I literally put the rooftop tent, drive out to Colorado. You know, we were hitting some pretty serious trails and it handled those really well. And it's proven to be, I've had some problems with it. Um, some of the typical problems with like uh, the shift linkage kind of crapping out on the auto box and the steering ball joint um, crapping out and, you know, the compressor crapping out once, but they're actually not that hard to fix. And other than that, they're pretty reliable. They're super comfortable. They tow awesome. So I've towed all kinds of stuff with it. I've got a like a 18 foot beaver tail, uh, utility trailer. And I've towed, you know, like the last thing I was towing was big rocks that have been moving around on my property. So a lot of weight, you know, and the, that traction control system, it, it works really well. I'm almost to the point where, you know, I don't even care where the dial is. I just mess around on my driveway. So it's interesting to see, it knows like for for example it knows the steepness of the hill it's got a little so it won't shift going up my driveway and then i play around with the different settings to see what setting or what can i do to try to make this thing shift up while it's in the various off-road modes and i play around it doesn't i can't you don't get the little pictogram of uh like the diff locks and stuff if you're just in the standard mode, you have to pick one of the terrain modes for it to do the pictogram. So I don't know how much it changes, like if it makes a huge difference, because I've, you know, I've driven, I've done the winter romp and totally forgotten to put it into any mode. The only thing that I do is turn off the, the traction control. Um, you know, that's the one thing you have to do with those because it just throttles back. Um, but other than that, it's been, it's been a really good, it's been a good truck. So you're saying the terrain mode is, it's, it's a good thing, but it's not maybe, maybe it's just like on or off. Is that kind of what? Well, no, like the terrain, well, there's, so you got the different flavors with like the sand, the ruts and rock and the mud. And I don't see a huge, practically speaking, a huge difference between any of those. But when you just turn it off, it also works great. And I, but once you turn it off, you have, you, you don't get to see as much of what the truck is doing. I mean, it's seamless when it locks and unlocks the differentials. So unless that little light is telling you, you probably wouldn't be aware of it, but I have found that it'll lock the rear diff without the center diff being locked, you know, and it, and counterintuitive things. I go to a lot of the shows in Europe. So I was in Bod Kissingen, which is a big off-road show. And I met this guy who was, he built his own OS for the LR3 and the LR4 so that you could actually engage all of these things yourself. He had like a little Raspberry Pi type thing. Mm -hmm. So he wow. could lock the diff and he could unlock it. And he could actually, because it's also a limited slip diff. So it's got a clutch pack in it and he could adjust on his own the, the clutch and he could, he, he could do all the, I mean, and I was kind of like, it was brilliant, but I was like, I don't think there's a big enough market out there. there. If it was a Jeep and they sold hundreds of thousands, that guy would probably have a business right now as a kit. 
And he was trying to like sell it and, and work it up at this show, but it was really funky. And I was like, wow, that that's cool. Cause then you can lock that diff anytime you want and unlock it anytime you want. Um, and he ha also had different algorithms. So he figured out those, what, uh, what Rover was doing, or he had a general idea of what the different settings did. And then he could amp them up and exaggerate them kind of like when you mess around with a camera or something, you know, and, and you can really, if you take a raw full, you know, a raw image, it was sort of the same type of thing. It's just code. This yeah. is a guy with too much time on his hands. Yeah, no, he's trying to make a business out of it though. So it, it, I, I never heard. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's it. enough volume there. To yeah, say. no, exactly. Exactly. That's kind of the challenge I mean, as a, as a $200 DIY raspberry Pi kit though, maybe. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. And the other thing that he had that was really cool is he had two, big air tanks so that um he had more air capacity in for the air spring suspension so that was you know the the it's hard to wrap your head around the way the air springs work and and so when i was getting when i was learning uh, doing the land rover driving instructor thing in the uk that was like p38 days right in the very beginning um and it had the 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 airbags and the airbags so you would think that when you put more air in the airbags the springs get stiffer but they don't the, the it, it's just the it, it's just going to raise or lower the suspension because the actual well, the, the rate, it's kind of hard. There's like a hockey puck thing that the bag goes around and it's right. not just straight. It's got a curve in it. And that actually also changes the rate because the, the, the rubber has to travel farther because it's going around a curve. And then when it's straight, it travels less. So that gives you a little bit of a variable rate there. Also changes your effective diameter with height change. Right. And so, but the, 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 putting more air into the system gives you actually more volume and it gives you more compression. So it's, you would, I was always thinking like, okay, when I, when you put more air and you raise the suspension, you're making the springs stiffer, but you're actually not making them stiffer, which is kind of counterintuitive. I used to work as an air suspension engineer, so I know exactly what you're saying. Okay. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. I, no, I mean, you're, you're, you're on the right track. Yeah, my, my, my big gripe about the P38 and 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 that system was the the airbags were undersized. Yeah, yeah. I, the 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 same thing the D2 that I had had those rear airbags. Right. Um, and if they'd gone to a larger diameter bag, they could have run a, a lower operating pressure, which number one would have made it a whole lot more reliable, but it would have softened the ride up quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and the, you know, the, the funny thing with, with my LR three is, is that I just, it had a hundred thousand miles on it. It was a 10, 11 year old truck. So I just, as matter of course, bought new rear bags and I swapped them out. And the, the original bags were actually, you know, they didn't actually look that bad. I mean, they're they're and they're not that hard to change. I mean, they're easier no. to change than a coil spring. As, as long as you get the, the pneumatic connections right, they're finicky. You know, once you do that, it's 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 proven to be. I like that air suspension. And the rear, the rear axle travel on the LR3 is pretty impressive. When they when they kind of cross, they cross them over so that the pressure from the one bag is going across to the other one. You know, that's that's a as far as a independent suspension, rear suspension goes. 
that rear suspension has a lot of travel. You know, I'll tell you what's next for me is to get my first Defender actually rolling and running. Assemble the kit. Yes, exactly. The, the the one that is more than 10 years now. That is that's my holy grail of Land Rover things. We have a friend here in the in the Pittsburgh area that, that his first rover he bought and accumulated parts for it. it took him 22 years to build it. Yeah, I'm I'm up there. I'm getting close. Are you going to take that to winter uh, to winter up? Are you going to take that to the uh, Diamond Jubilee then? Is that the, the Vapor Rover? No, but the 101, the 101 is basically all that needs is some maintenance stuff. So that's some what I'm hoping to bring some maintenance. What does that yeah. mean? Well, <laughs> it definitely it it needs that uh, hose, which the hose from the oil cooler to the engine is like Whitworth on one end and metric on the other. Oh, um, neat. Yeah. So, or something it's, it's so don't two, get it on backwards, right? It's two different standards. And I actually got the replacement for that. So I have to change that hose. And I probably, since it's been parked for like four or five years, I have to kind of wake it up gently, so to say, and kind of yeah. make sure everything's good, but they don't know, like to sit. Yeah, no, it's the death of any vehicle. And and it breaks my heart that I haven't actually, you know, gotten out there. And, and first I have to pull the 91 Range Rover that's got it blocked in out of the way. It's it's always that pro in order to get to that project, there are three other projects that you have to get done first before you can get there. That's all. Yeah, but you got a tractor and a chain. You can get to that. Oh yeah, no, I'll I'll get to it. And um it'll be nice to hear that V8 fire up again. And you'll you'll drive it straight to Greet Peak. I think I would probably since I'm becoming older now, I think I'd LR three trailer it. Oh, nice. and, and then, um, you know, so I'd come, I'd come with two Land Rovers. Um, it's a long, the, the challenge with getting out to Greek peak from where I am is it's not quite a two day drive, but it's like an 11 hour, you know, highway speed drive. So it's right in between. You want to kind of do it in a day type thing, but in the one one um, and the other thing is I want to just be careful with, I want to wake that vehicle up slowly. I mean, that might be a little bit of a shock for it to like mm -hmm. have it sit for five years, fire it up and then try to drive it, you know, halfway across the Northeast. Well, start in March. I'll give you a couple yeah. months to, to, oh, do, yeah. to do that. Well, Hey, Ben and I are looking at trying to get our one Oh ones going. So you might have some motivation to get Percy going. Yes. Ooh. No, I think it would be fun. We could have Friendly a little competition. Yeah. And a little reunion. Cause I think it was like three one Oh ones last time, you know? And so it would be fun to, to bring some of them yeah. over. Can we get a pool going on who's is done first? Nope. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't have a, I don't, none of us have a very good track record in, in like getting vehicles quickly on the road. Are we hearing competition? Is that what the, is that what we're hearing? Oh, I think the competition's been going for what five years now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the tortoise and the hare, and and all three of us are like trying to. Actually, we're all hares, but we're running around in different directions. Yeah, no, I think it's it's you know it's like Ben as well. We all have so many projects going on that it's just really hard to stay on any given project at any given well, time. Well, that's the nice thing about having the seventy fifth. You have a you have a, something to focus on, and now you can can focus your your time and attention. I said it here officially. I'm going to try to get that the the 101. You are on record. I haven't even told my wife that that's what we're doing this summer yet. So we'll uh -oh. see. <laughs> nice, nice. 
Well, George, it's been uh, a, a wonderful having you on the podcast, talking about your adventures in uh, Roverdom, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I suspect you'll be a frequent guest now because you it sounds like you have more stories that we need to hear. Well, I really enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed show number 118 for January of 2023. It is now Land Rover's 75th anniversary year. Thanks to George Bull for his turn and talking to us about getting down his driveway <laughs> and other adventures throughout North America. And also thanks to the One True Packs for his continued production support. We do appreciate your help on the sound uh, aspect of the podcast packs. And of course, thanks to Harold for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Harold. Yeah, 10 bucks is 10 bucks. And of course, to Morgan, who had to call in sick for today's show. And thanks to Dixon, who has been recently paroled from His Majesty's Guest House uh, for coming on the program. Thanks, Dixon. No problem. And a congratulations to our friends over at the Underpowered Hour on reaching their 100th episode. Congratulations, gents. 100. <laughs> Welcome to the club, guys. It's a, it's, a, it's a great achievement. We know that it uh, it takes, uh, uh, there's a lot of effort that goes on behind the scenes to to get out one episode, let alone get out 100 of them. And a fair amount of self-abuse. <laughs> Though I understand that the, the 100th episode is only 34 minutes long. And I believe that's because Ike was off in the shop welding brackets onto the front of the NAS Freelander that Steve is going to try to drive across to the 75th. So he can go and I can go and tow it behind him is 80 inch though only as far as wisconsin i understand because steve owen will be taking over to tow it across ontario with his 80 inch it's amazing what kind of gas mileage and fuel economy a freelander can get when it's being towed across a continent see now those brackets are referred to as the range extending package ah yes that's right i recall seeing that Visit our website, centersteer.com, to listen to previous shows and for show notes, which have links to stories discussed in today's podcast. Uh, we post a new podcast at the end of every month. You can connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and voicemail, and email. You can directly support the show at patreon.com slash centersteer. You can buy us a t-shirt. Actually, you can buy yourself a t-shirt you or a sticker. You can buy us a tea. I click on store in the menu of our webpage for details. If you have an idea for a guest, uh, send us the details and the contact information if you have it. In honor of Land Rover's 75th anniversary, you are invited to bring your Land Rover, especially Series and Defender vehicles, to the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix in 2023. It's kind of a nice little rhyme, the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix in 2023. You have six months to prepare for the Vintage Grand Prix and five months to prepare for an ARC's Diamond Jubilee event. Tick-tock. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and what you're up to in your Land Rover. Until next time, I ask you to share the show with one other Land Rover enthusiast. On behalf of the entire crew here at the Center Steer Podcast, I'd like to thank you for listening today. We know you have a choice in your podcasting content, and we do appreciate your choosing us. Please take a moment to look around you for any personal items you may be leaving behind, including in the overhead bins. Please watch your step as you exit, and you may now resume your important things. I got to go get on an airplane now, so I will talk with you chaps later.